Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. My name is Corey Schenk, and joining me in the studio today are Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And Harrison Keeley. Hi, everyone. On today's show, we're going to be discussing the, I guess you could call them the peculiar values of Darwinian evolution, but primarily how they have impacted science and culture, and why so many lay people refuse to quote-unquote believe in these values and the science behind it, and the psychology of some of the most vehement proponents of Darwinian theory throughout the, its uh, past couple centuries. So, now, just a little background. A little more than two years ago, in November of 2016, there was what has been described as a quote-unquote groundbreaking summit at the British Royal Society. About 300 scientists from around the world gathered to discuss a radical rethink in evolutionary theory. At the conference, a scientist from the University of Chicago presented his work on the fact that bacteria are capable of engineering their own DNA, something that we've discussed on shows, um, prior shows. Now, obviously, this was very big news, and at the conference, he was, uh, he was panned, basically, by the Darwinian lobby, but he was praised by numerous Nobel Prize-winning works, or Nobel Prize-winning uh, scientists. So, the basic outcome of that conference was the message that evolution has goals, organisms have goals, and they actively evolve to achieve those goals. So then flash forward to last week and Darwin's birthday, February 12th, and over 1,000 scientists have now signed a descent from Darwinism... Uh, list. List, yeah. <laughs> a descent from Darwinism list, uh, part of which reads, we are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. As we discussed on a previous show, neo-Darwinian evolution, primarily the idea that random mutations and natural selection are the sole drivers of the evolution of all living beings, has been proven to be false, and a larger amount of scientists are coming out in revolt against that idea. That said, it's unlikely that Darwinian theory is just going to go down in flames, since a lot of people have a vested interest in the theory, above and beyond any desire to discover the truth or, or explain the facts that are being... Uh, are, that are coming up in just day-to-day -day -day scientific research. It's tainted history attests to that. <clears throat> From social Darwinist ideas that all life is competitive to the horrors of the eugenics movement to the more recent outcome of sociobiology, which declares that all things that appear to be cooperative, loving, and altruistic are unreal. Even with what is a neo-Darwinian facelift in recent decades, the fundamental values seem to remain the same, even though scientific inquiry continues. And at their core, these values are, don't seem necessarily truth-oriented and scientific, as a lot of people can pick up instinctually, but they seem more like a quasi-scientific ideology or religion, depending on the context. So, ideology has been defined as a collection of normative beliefs and values that an individual or group holds for other than purely epistemic reasons, other than, you know, reasons having to do with a desire to know truth, to learn about the world. And so this seems like what Darwinian evolution is more and more every day. 
It normative beliefs and values that, using the much vaunted name of science, declare that man is nothing but a reproduction machine enslaved to selfish genes that are somehow both completely accidental and simultaneously in control of the destiny of all living beings. And anything that doesn't fit into those categories, things like consciousness, altruism, religious experience, our capacity to suffer in pursuit of higher goals, is just basically a biological error. It's, con it's condemned. And so I just wanted to read a quote from a sociobiologist uh, speaking plainly uh, about what he thought of these such things. The evolution of society fits the Darwinian paradigm in its most individualistic form. The economy of nature is competitive from beginning to end. Understand that economy and how it works, and the underlying reasons for social phenomena are manifest. They are the means by which one organism gains some advantage to the detriment of another. No hint of genuine charity ameliorates our vision of society once sentimentalism has been laid aside. What passes for cooperation turns out to be a mixture of opportunism and exploitation. The impulses that lead one animal to sacrifice himself for another turn out to have their ultimate rationale in gaining advantage over a third, and acts for the good of one society turn out to be performed for the detriment of the rest. Where it is in his own interest, every organism may reasonably be expected to aid his fellows, but where he has no alternative, he submits to the yoke of servitude. Yet and this is the most fascinating part, given a full chance to act in his own interests, nothing but expediency will restrain him from brutalizing, from maiming, from murdering his brother, his mate, his parent, or his child. Scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. <laughs> so I think you write that right there. I wanted to set up the show with that quote because I thought that it delivered in its full brutality the taste and the flavor of the thinking that goes on. I'm sure it probably still goes on to this day, even though the neo-Darwinian circles, they're, they're, they're much more likely to be political, I think, because these days you can't really get away with coming out and saying that every parent's just going to murder their children. I mean, it's just this attack on common decency that has led so many people to critique Darwin, uh, Darwinian theory over the years. Um, but lacking the evidence that it's wrong, they've had they've been at a, d a distinct disadvantage. Even though you can point out, you know, all the different philosophical and logical errors within the arguments, there's still there's still the fact that science has to do what science does. And so now, as we're getting more information, and the science part is is moving forward, now we can see the disconnect between this value system, which is nihilistic, atheistic, materialistic and the actual reality of living beings. And mm -hmm. we can see it as, a car as the cartoon the, uh, for what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, um, in previous shows, we've talked a bit about uh, you know, the intelligent design Darwinism debate. And so there's several angles from which you can, um, you know, that you can take a look at these kinds of ideas and, and criticize them. And there's primarily the scientific one. And I think that's what that's what the the debate should kind of rest on is the scientific ideas or that should be at least the starting point it's not necessarily the only kind of angle of attack um, but I think for this purpose it's kind of the most important to lay the foundation because from the books that we've read and from the stuff that you know we've been able to share however limited you know on the shows that we've done we've kind of shown that there are um, like pretty solid reasons why uh, like neo-darwinism and Darwinism both are just bad ideas. Like there's no there's no reason that anyone should actually believe them. 
um, when when you actually get into the details, they're they're fairy tales. Um, so we don't have to necessarily rehash those arguments. You know, if uh, we, we can do that a bit if we want. But one of the the main things we're going to be focusing on today is keeping that in mind. Then we can look at something else. We can look at the psychology of the of of the the kind of worldview, the Darwinist worldview, because. <clears throat> I think any scientist would argue that, uh, well, they would, that you can't attack an idea if it's immoral, for instance, because morals have no place in, uh, in science. That's at least coming from their, you know, sci- uh, their, scientific, sci- their scientific naturalistic worldview that's atheistic, materialistic, and, uh, you know, and, uh, based on a sensory theory of perception. But from, from their perspective, there's no need and no good reason to bring um, like psychological categories or moral categories into the debate, <clears throat> but if we are starting from, uh, if we're if we've got the starting point that we have no good reason to believe in Darwinism, then we can say, okay, well now now let's let's be curious about this. What is like the Darwinian kind of worldview? What is its psychology? What, what can we learn from that? And when you when you take at it, when you look at it from that perspective, it becomes. Uh, you know, your eyes kind of get opened up, and you're like, "Okay, wow, that uh, that's really kind of um, disturbing," <laughs> because uh, this was kind of pro- like thinking about it in these terms was prompted by a quote from uh, what's his name, Stove, um, Douglas Stove, I Douglas think. Stove, his book uh, Darwinian Fairy Tales, and I'll just read the quote from it. Uh, he writes. Uh, Gwen Raverett was a daughter of Charles Darwin's son, George. She wrote a wonderful book entitled Period Piece about her childhood and her numerous Darwin relatives. Late in that book, she remarks that the Darwins in general were quite unable to understand the minds of the poor, the wicked, or the religious. This is most profoundly true, and it is true not only of Darwins or of Darwinians of the blood royal, such as Galton, but of all Darwinians of what might be called the pure strain, uh, the pure strain of intellectual descent from Darwin, for example, Fisher, Darlington, E.O. Wilson, and Richard Dawkins. And it means, of course, a rather large gap in their understanding of human life, since the poor, the wicked, and the religious must make up, on a- any estimate, at least three-quarters of all human beings. But, true as Gwen Reverett's remarks, as, and as far as it, uh, true as Gwen Reverett's remark is, and as far as it goes, it does not go nearly far enough. For there are many large classes of people who are neither poor nor wicked nor religious, but who are still a closed book to the characteristically Darwinian cast of mind. Essentially what he's just saying here, and the, like the observation that uh, Raverett made, was that uh, not only could the Darwins themselves, not only did they seem to have like uh, these mental handicaps in their ability to understand human nature and its, in all its variation, <clears throat> but that... Um, like Darwin, Darwin, the the theory itself, and has it has it has as it has expanded now into like uh, uh, neo Darwinism and like evolutionary uh, Darwinism, um, evolutionary psychology, that um, the theory itself can't explain certain like human universals and certain variations in in human psychology. But not only that, that uh, well, he doesn't mention this, but. But um, when it attempts to explain those things, it does so from this perspective that is um, just seems not quite human. Um, we'll get into you know why I phrased it in that way in a bit. But basically, that there is a kind of worldview that you can find just in people 
in general, just like on the street, they don't have to be Darwin's, uh, like Darwinists, but that there's a, like you'll meet certain people in life that that seem to just not have a grasp of um, like the, the richness and complexity of, of human experience and human life and human consciousness. And so when you combine those two together, how, when you have like an individual who doesn't have a great grasp on human nature and then you, they either create a theory or they latch on to a theory, um, a scientific theory, <clears throat> you get this kind of nasty combination of a theory that reinforces their own worldview and then the worldview that influences the, the direction that the theory takes. So not only, not only do you get that positive feedback loop going within the, the theory and the theorists, um, that then expands outwards um, through the influence that, um, that educators have. Because the people that come up with these theories then become the professors who essentially indoctrinate or teach younger students to adopt that framework, even if it contradicts their own experience. And so, and you see that, um, it's, it's even openly acknowledged among Darwinists, for, for instance, because one, one of the main justifications or one of the main reasons that um, the Darwin's theory like, exists and is taught is because they say that because the world does look as if it's designed, it, it does look as if uh, like organisms are designed in some way from intelligence. And so the, the idea is that to show, to, to instruct children and to, to instu- instruct young minds, um, how to how to realize that it only appears as if it is intelligently designed in some way and and so you get you know you get children who start out with a natural intuition that things are that in that complex like integrated systems of 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 parts and uh, you know and add consciousness onto that that these things are designed and must be and you kind of just like stamp that out and say well no it just looks that way and here's why except the reasons that they give while um, convincing to many don't actually hold up, and uh, and they themselves are propped up by a, a series of gaps in knowledge. Of okay, well we can't explain that, but we're just going to assume that this happened here, and then things happen for a while. But then we can't explain this either. But we're just going to assume that this happens there, and then and see it all makes sense, and that's why you don't have to believe in design. But then you know a skeptical person <laughs> looks at that and says, well wait a second, what about those all those you know gaps there? It's like you just assume that something's happening there, but did it really? Like so, there's there's actual. Not only is there um, actual reason for skepticism, you know, just looking at it from that perspective, as we've, as I said earlier, and as we've said in previous shows, there's actual actual scientific reasoning, and um, um, reasoning for rejecting those ideas in the first place. They're not even plausible ideas. Um, like they're only plausible in the sense of like doing a thought experiment. Okay, well let's let's imagine a system where this kind of stuff stuff can happen and see what happens. It's like okay, imagine all you want. Now, is that actually possible in the real world? Well, it turns out no, it's not. Maybe just to sum up really quickly, you know, some of the conclusions we came to earlier for you know for those who might have missed them, it's that at every at every significant point in the in evolutionary history, the the theory is not able to account for. For those for, for those jumps in evolution, so not we can't explain the origin of life itself. So and what that requires, for instance, is the creation of not only <clears throat> a genome, not only DNA, which is the code, but also for the decoding mechanisms that can replicate. But the DNA itself codes for the mechanisms that replicate the DNA for the proteins, the enzymes. So you can't have DNA without enzymes. But you can't have enzymes but without DNA, because DNA are what produce the enzymes. The two things have to come about at the same time. And no one can explain that. No one has been able to explain that. 
it is a universally acknowledged mystery for those that actually know what they're talking about. Some people will, um, will essentially lie and say, oh, well, we know how it happened. But actually, they don't. You, actually, you, you look at what the, the people involved in origin of life research actually say, they admit. We have no idea. No one has any idea. And if anyone says that they know, they're lying. Or they're just uh, delusional. They think they, that, that, that there's an answer and that people know, but no one actually does. That's only the first mystery. Then you get like, so somehow you get these first genes. We don't, we don't know how to get from one gene to another because the way genes are, the way the, way the, like the possibilities of all these different uh, proteins are, are set up like in nature somehow is that there are like, you can imagine them as like mountains of, of, of possibilities. So you've got like a, a, a protein family essentially. So you've got all of these like very similarly structured and related uh, proteins. And maybe if you have like random mutation, you can jump from one to another because they're all pretty close. But then you've got a large, you know, a huge chasm between the, that protein family and the next protein family, where you, you would require an astronomical amount of time and random variations going in a very specific direction to, to, to jump from that one protein family to another in order to get that new protein. So we can't, and this is the research that Douglas Axe has done, it's mathematically impossible, given all the resources of time and um, and energy and, and materials in the universe and in the history of the universe to get from one protein to a totally new protein. It's impossible. The, somehow information gets injected into DNA to go from one protein to another. And you can't get new species, you can't get new life forms without a new gene. And if you just look at the data that we have and you look at all the genes, you can't find the pathways from one that, that for them to branch out through random mutation. You get these totally new genes that pop up with no idea how they how they um, like mutated randomly from some ancestor, you know, DNA chain to to make that to make from the old protein. It's just mystery after mystery, and so and that's on the micro level. And then you look at the macro level. You have one species to another. Well, there's so much going on to, from one species to another that there you can't. Um, there's no series of incremental changes that can lead from one species to another, and that's not how it appears in the in the fossil record either. They, they do appear to come out of nowhere relatively. Like one species, one minute, and then you know the next in the fossil record, record you have a new species. And that's universal across the fossil record that there isn't uh, a record of that of that of those small changes from one to the other. And and then you know philosophically too, and just um, um, well yeah philosophically it you you can't uh, there's no way of actually justifying that kind of change. There's no way of of um, of rationalizing that kind of change using like this gra gradual random uh, approach. Uh, any angle that you look at it, it doesn't work. Uh, primarily, I think the most important, like I said earlier, is the scientific because you can just say, okay, well, look, no, this is impossible. This can't happen without this happening. We need to account for this. No one can account for this right now, at least within the current scientific worldview. That's kind of all we have to say at this point. Um, it's really up to the Darwinists to to make their case by looking at these tiny, at these areas, not tiny areas, they're giant areas, but at these specific areas, because that's, that's where everything, that's what everything hinges on, is looking at like for how to get from one protein to another. They still can't do that. Well, I think what's really instructive right now in this kind of, where everything is coming to the fore uh, with, with the uh, neo-Darwinists uh, challenging intelligent design and, and all of these new discoveries is the responses of the neo-Darwinists uh, to the new research, to the work of uh, Michael Behe and, and Douglas Axe and others. Uh, and, and 
what uh, what guys like Michael Behe are saying is your arguments are not holding up. You're not even attempting to honestly address what it is we're presenting here. So uh, we talked a little bit about this on a recent show. Uh, Behe has a new book uh, called Darwin Devolves. And um, Richard Lenski, who is a, like one of the, the leading proponents of neo-Darwinism, has been coming out to, uh, to, to critique it. Um, and and Behe's responses, uh, he we had an article on Sat uh, recently, and he's just he's just followed up uh, on his prior kind of introductory statements on Lenski's criticisms. Um, so I, I just want to read a little bit from that and and get into the uh, the logical fallacies uh, <coughs> and the types of thinking that that uh, guys like Lenski engage in to try to. Uh, knock down these new discoveries in, in evolution. Um, so Behe begins in a recent article, last week science unexpectedly published a scathing pre-publication review by Richard Lenski and two co-authors of my book, Darwin Devals. I've already posted a short gleeful reply, noting that their almost complete lack of a response to the book's main argument, but I had planned to say more. This lengthier post will address such points as they do make, grouped into four themes. Supposed counterexamples they cite, stale arguments they bring up, Lenski's own evolution work, and a clear conclusion to draw. For readers who don't have time to plow all the way through, here are the take-home lessons. Gene-level counterexamples cited by the reviewers are shamelessly question-begging. The reviewers simply gesture at genes and assume they were produced and or integrated into living systems by random processes. But neither the reviewers nor, nor anyone else has even tried to show that is possible. Organ-level counterexamples cited by the reviewers as produced by exaptive processes are similarly question-begging. Criticisms of my earlier books cited by the reviewers were similarly question-begging and or relied on vague imaginative stories. The reviewers are either unaware of or ignore my many detailed replies to earlier criticisms and to papers the reviewers themselves cite. As noted in my previous post, the reviewers don't even attempt to grapple with the main argument of the book, that beneficial degradative mutations will rapidly, relentlessly, unavoidably outcompete beneficial constructive mutations at every time and population scale. What was that word, degradative? Uh, I, I probably mispronounced it. Degradative. Degradative. As in, as in degradation, as yeah. in degrading. Um, so uh, what Behe is, is pointing out in, in there, uh, begging the question, is they're using a, a kind of logical fallacy. Uh, that occurs when an argument's premises ass assumes the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it. It is a type of circular reasoning, an argument that requires that the desired conclusion be true. So um, right there you have, uh, and, and when, you, when you see Behe's responses fleshed out a little further, uh, what, what you come to understand is that folks like Lenski uh, live inside of this kind of um, bubble of of belief. Uh, earlier, Corey, you used the you know the the 
descriptor of uh, ideology, where where this has become a uh, where neo Darwinism has become this kind of a it, it it has become a kind of an ideology of sorts, a scientific one that's decidedly non scientific, because what it does is it closes off seemingly by design uh, any any further questioning, any scientific investigation that that would allow anyone to draw any further conclusions. Uh, so to me, what's most interesting about this discussion, in addition to the, um, what, what, the what the kind of um, psychological substratum of, of these scientists are, is the types of thinking that, uh, that, that neo-Darwinism completely cuts off people from. What it, what it uh, the lines of inquiry, the lines of, um, of thought uh, and of perhaps also a feeling that uh, aren't allowed in this in this type of ideology, and um, you know you, you mentioned it in your intro a little bit. Uh, materialism um, doesn't allow for any kind of uh, spiritual hierarchy. It doesn't allow for uh, the, the validity of a non-physical reality. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't permit the idea that information as a as a as a as a, as a kind of third um, property of reality, in addition to matter and energy, uh, exists. Um, so it's got neo Darwinism has all of these other implications for for our our worldview, uh, how we perceive reality, what we allow ourselves to uh, let in as as what exists in the world. Um, it, it has all kinds of limiting um, uh, power on, on what we're able to acknowledge as uh, you know, God, uh, religion, um, all of these things that don't fit into, a, uh, into a, this very narrow physical universe. Um, you know, I used to have conversations with my father about this very thing. Uh, he would he would maintain that everything was biological coincidence. That was his way of, of saying random mutation. That's what he understood from, from his readings. And, and I would always, I took the other side of the argument intuitively. I didn't have the irreducible complexity argument or the, or the picture of the, 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 the flagella to show him uh, that proved you know, that intelligent design is this, is this very valid scientifically proven idea um and so he was uh he not a not a bad man by any means he's a very good man um at the same time they were they were uh using his him as an example um a very limited set of of ideas that he could incorporate into his worldview uh that i came to understand through my conversations with him so that's my personal kind of Face-to-face um, -face, uh, understanding of of how all of this thinking trickles down to the interpersonal uh, with people you care about, with friends, with family. Um, you know, even if I didn't ascribe to a particular religion, I did ascribe to the idea that there was a spiritual hierarchy and a non-physical reality, and uh, and and things that existed that weren't tangible physically through the through the senses. And it's. It's rather bizarre, isn't it, that we all come into this world and, you know, I'm imagining that, you know, most of our listeners are conscious, to some degree, conscious of their experience and they, 
they have values and they're they're curious about things and they have this sense that there's more to life than just reproducing and maiming and killing everyone and they've never experienced anything like that in a normal you know human society social mm-hmm. situation of course there's there's horrible examples of civil war and everything where a darwinian life or a darwinian human situation comes about but it's not optimal and it's not normal and it's mm-hmm. it's it's maybe you can explain it by darwinian processes but the functional and optimal way of living of you know striving and having a spiritual goal and and you know sacrificing yourself for family for friends for community um, you know and doing things that are quote unquote altruistic even though darwinianism tells you that's a biological error um, that th- those things are have higher value to you than you know all of this other nonsense that we're, that's how we're supposed to live even if you believe in darwinism even if you believe in darwinism which is yeah which is the main problem is that that performatory contradiction right the the way you live contradicts your entire theory mm-hmm. um but yeah it's just it's interesting to me that we come into this world but now it is so uh it, you we've been so indoctrinated by that way of thinking that it's just common sense of course everything's just randomly evolved you know i mean i remember when i went to college and i wrote a paper on oxytocin for some you know dumb psychology class and you know it wasn't like i was getting my phd or anything but i i wrote this paper on oxytocin and i did my research and everything and i was reading and i was fascinated by um because you know, this was a new relatively new concept to me that you know we there's these chemicals that that are um you know correlated with certain behavioral states and i was just i was like fascinated they you know it's good it, this chemical makes us behave this way and so i you know i wrote this paper and then just just to end it off just like a dumb you know just uh just like a, you know i just was just like oh okay well this is all really interesting but how does this chemical know how to feel i was just curious it was just a curious question and well i had to uh uh, as part of this class, we had to take our papers in through a uh, some sort of an auditor type individual, somebody who edits, mm-hmm. uh, and an editor. And so I took it in, and I mean, you know, spelling was fine, you know, punctuation was fine, but that sentence, that question was it irritated and irked this girl like none other she could not believe i would ask such a stupid horrible non-scientific question i'm like this isn't a i'm not going for my phd this is this is a you know like a four-page paper you know i can't i ask that question do you have an answer for it can can you repeat the question again Corey? how does oxytocin know how to feel like how does it know how to feel but of course she knew that it was just ran it just randomly mixed together over billions of years and then you know through random mutation and natural selection it was just it just happened to gain a goal and gain a purpose in the entire living uh, system that we live in that you know did all a, a bunch of different kinds of things but you know for her that was all explained by random mutation and natural selection but for me i just couldn't believe that this chemical interacted with consciousness mm-hmm. in such a way that you could subjectively feel and it was you know it wasn't uh it was an endogenous drug so that it was something that was produced within our body and that and something that us. you have the power and, to to uh, stimulate within yourself yeah i was i was just I was like well how does who knew that you know this is how it should feel but anyhow so i uh i had to rewrite the paper and i could i had to take that sentence out i don't think i don't remember if i did take that sentence out or not but i still remember sitting in that little office while she she left 
to and I, I had to just sit there and wait for her verdict and just the uh, the disdain and distaste and I'm sitting there thinking it's such an innocent question and then years later I can't remember I think it was Thomas Nagel Nagel I Nagel. think he Nagel he published a book on the on the subject on how you know how did these molecules know how to feel on the the you know, the peculiar philosophy behind subjectivity and the connection between mind and body mm -hmm. and I'm like god dang it she cheated me out of that <laughs> out of that book I could have turned that paper into a, a 300 page book no but yeah I was just I I was just shocked at how just she shut it down so quickly and it and you know just Everybody like that is so bizarre. So such a weird thing to think. But yeah, that's uh, brings me back to this the idea of atheism and materialism in general. As I remember uh, reading about Richard Dawkins, and he he said something to the uh, something like after or before Darwin published um, the Origin of Species, it would have been impossible to be an atheist. Because of what we said, when you look at the world and you experience life and you have your own emotions, your own experiences, and you see, uh, you see design in nature, it's, you just see it everywhere. You, know, you see design in how your family interacts, you see design in, the, in your social world, but you also see design in, this, in the way that the living system all seems to work. You know, and and it's it's a mis it's always been a mystery, and then after you get uh, evolution came uh, this theory came along, and it had so much force, so much explanatory power to tell you that no, it's all dead, stupid, it's it's purposeless. There's no reason for any of it. There's no intelligence out there. You're crazy if you, you think there's intelligence. There's no altruism. Why are you talking about you know your your fairy tale ideas of of altruism and and cooperating with other uh, with other people, um, you know uh, they simultaneously say that altruism doesn't exist, but that it does exist. It's just selfishness. Mm -hmm. It's just another way of saying you're selfish, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. Because I mean, if you're going to put the the bar that high for altruism, I mean, then there's no way that it could exist. You know, I mean, I just can't even think of how you could possibly be altruistic if, you know, saints and are, are just acting selfishly. Um, but yeah, it's uh, this when, I think that's the primary power, isn't it, of evolutionary theory for a lot of these materialistic, atheistic types of individuals and why it's, it has so much uh, power and why it's been indoctrinated in so many people is, um, you know, that the war against religions and why it's like, well, you know, maybe evolution isn't 100% right, but we can't give it back to the Bible thumpers, you know, and we can't let you know, we can't go give it back to the creationists. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, society's been stuck in that, in this indoctrinated atheism for so many years that people forgot that, that there was a sense of, of, of wonder and when you look at creation. Even, you know, diehard scientists, these scientists who you think they're going, ah, we're going to discover the truth. They get in there and they're like, you're going to, you just want to kill your family. That's really what you want. You're like, no, it's not. They're like, yeah, it is. I wrote my PhD on thesis on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, with that in mind, the so so like I said at the beginning, there seems to be this kind of um, blanched kind of. Uh, there's got to be a better word for it. Kind of um, this worldview that sees humanity in this very narrow, um, like low, 
base from this very low base level, right? That uh, that not only is humanity humanity like uniformly of a certain type, but that of that type is something that is limited to what we would traditionally consider like the basest of of human behaviors and uh, and thoughts and and impulses. And so, with th- with that in mind, there are a few quotes from Ponderology that I want to bring onto the table that I think. Uh, I think will be kind of thought-provoking if you haven't heard them before, especially in this context. <clears throat> so the first one. Um, I'll, I'll offer some explanatory remarks after this first one. A schizoid's ponderogenic activity should be evaluated in two aspects. On the small scale, such people cause families trouble, easily turn into tools of intrigue in the hands of clever individuals, and generally do a poor job of raising the younger generation. Their tendency to, hu- to see human reality in the doctrinaire and simplistic manner they consider proper transforms their frequently good intentions into bad results. However, their ponderogenic role can take on macro-social proportions if their attitude toward human reality and their tendency to invent great doctrines are put to paper and duplicated in large editions. <coughs> Excuse me. So he's talking here about schizoids. Now, um, just you know, to give some background, we'd call these people today, uh, or we'd say that they have schizoid personality disorder. And uh, you can look that up. You know, it's got a Wikipedia page. You can read up on you know what the what our current kind of psychological community um, has to say about schizoidia. But I want to I want to just give a little bit of background uh, before we get into like. You know the kind of the implications of of what Lobachevsky is saying in this and in you know future quotes that we'll read out. So uh, several months ago, we had a uh, we had a, a talk here about personality disorders and the kind of new research, the new ways of approaching looking at personality disorders and trying to trying to figure out what they are precisely and how to diagnose them correctly. <coughs> Basically, moving away from the DSM approach that that seems scientifically invalid, um, doesn't work. Um, it's not useful in a clinical setting. The diagnoses aren't reliable, you know, etc. Basically, they they need to kind of revamp the system because it just it, it hasn't worked and it's not working. And so the new system that they that they're coming up with is this uh, system based on the five factor uh, you know mode of per, uh, model of personality. And so, so basically, looking at uh, personality disorders basically as like a single dimension. You basically you either have personality disorder or you don't. And there are various uh, features that you that you can have, you know, com- that come along with that per- with that personality disorder factor, and those have to do with um, with the big five. So, for example, you can have um, like I kind of I, I looked through the papers and kind of tried to categorize it for myself, like how they all fit together and some different ways of looking at of looking at it. And so, basically, um, like there are I think um, how many personality disorders does um, there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like, I don't know, something like a dozen personality disorders that are talked about. Sometimes you'll see less, sometimes more. But um, they kind of break down into a few, um, a few different like binary choices, for instance. So you've got like the emotional, what, what, what I would call, like the, the, the scientists don't call them this, what I would call the emotional versus the unemotional personality disorders, for instance. So there are something like seven emotional personality disorders having to do with like one of their main features is some degree of negative emotion. Um, and this could be like um, anxiety and depression, or like anger, aggression, uh, rage, like 
that sort of thing. But then there, there are two, um, or only two, unemotional personality disorders. Those are schizoid and dissocial or like psychopathic. There are also like the, the disagreeable versus the agreeable personality disorders. Um, most of the, well, the disagreeable ones are like uh, narcissism, um, antisocial, histrionic, psych- psychopathy. These are the, the individuals that they, they don't have any agreeableness in them. Like the, it's just not part of their personality structure. But the agreeable ones are, um, you know, so those, these are people that you would find agreeable, but in personality disorder form, um, they'd be called uh, avoidant or dependent personality disorder. And um, there are also kind of what I would say are some kind of pathological extremes um, on any one of these uh, like five-factor um, personality dimensions, except openness. There doesn't seem to be a pathological openness um, you know, thing going on here. So, for example, you've got like if, you, if you've got pathological um, extroversion, you might be diagnosed as histrionic personality disorder, if you've got some other features as well. But uh, that extroversion seems to be the essential um, like identifying feature of histrionic personality disorder or hysterical personality disorder. And um, um, another one is like if you've got like pathological conscientiousness, again, these are like my framings of them, but like my, the way that it you know, just seems natural to me to talk about them. If you've got pathological conscientiousness, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Um, but if we look at schizoid, the, the two features of schizoid personality disorder are um, that unemotional nature. That's uh, so that they call it like a stable, stable personality as opposed to neurotic. Because if you if you if you look at that big five, um, you know, dimension, then you've you, you, you most well all all people will fall somewhere on the spectrum between um, neurotic and stable. The more neurotic you are, the more susceptible you are to negative emotions of various kinds. And the more stable you are, the less susceptible you are to those kind of uh, emotional triggerings, essentially. But both psychopaths and schizoids are like way at the end of um, you know low neuroticism to the point where um, like one of the ways you refer to them is unemotional. They have unemotional traits. And psychopaths, that's probably the defining feature of psychopaths, is that they they seem to like lack. There's a, there's a hole somewhere in their emotional makeup where they don't seem to experience at all certain human emotions. And that's what schizoids and psychopaths have in, have in common, is that lack of emotional um, experience. And because they lack that experience, they, um, they can't see it in others either, right? They can't understand, when they look at other people who have a normal like, spectrum of emotions, or an extreme, you know, ex- extreme like abundance of emotion, that doesn't make any sense to them because they have no frame of reference for it, because they don't actually feel those emotions. Um, the other uh, defining feature of of schizoidia or schizoid personality disorder is introversion. So that's actually it's a it's a pathological interview introversion. The only two personality di- disorders that um, that have introversion as like a personality trait are schizoid and avoidant. Um, so if you're you could you could think of schizoid personality disorder as like pathologically introverted and uh, lacking in emotion. And this is in, I think, one of the next quotes. You'll we'll see that Ponero, that uh, Lobachevsky talks about schizoids as being loners, as being introverts. He doesn't use the in- word introvert, but it's it's in there in the description. So, um, and uh, probably like related, um, uh, related to this kind of like introversion and lack of emotionality, it would be um, like some types of autism, like Asperger's, for instance, where people with As- Asperger's can't seem to um, or don't seem to 
to have that kind of social awareness. They're not, uh, they don't pick up, pick up on the social cues in ways that people without Asperger's do. And that, again, seems related to this, to, to something to do with how, um, how emotion is expressed and experienced and uh, some kind of lack within what, uh, what Lobachevsky would call the in, emotional instinctive substratum, the psychological substratum. And uh, for psychopathy, for instance, um, um, what's the guy's name? Kent Keel, who wrote the book The Psychopath Whisperer, like his theory, which uh, which I tend to like at this point, is that uh, he he hypothesizes that uh, psychopathy is like a neurodevelopmental disorder that basically affects the entire what he calls paralimbic system in the brain. So there's this uh, there's all these brain parts in the that are you know some are traditionally called the, li- the limbic system, but um, using um, a certain like way of looking at brain neurons and just the like the cyto architecture of the brain and like the similarities and differences between different parts. There's an entire system of the brain um, called that that is characterized as the paralimbic system. So it includes more more uh, well it includes areas that aren't like traditionally thought of as associated with um, with like traditionally limbic parts of the brain. And um, so he's basically found that there are. Um, problems in, in psychopaths for, in, in this whole region of the brain. So there's this whole like middle layer of the brain that seems, something seems to have gone wrong in psychopaths um, uh, at, at that level in their brain and, and for all these parts. So th- there is probably like a biological reason for, for you know, why this is all happening. We still don't know exactly even why it happens in the first place, though. Um, like Adrian Rain hypothesizes that it's neurodeve- neurodevelopmental in some ways, so that uh, you know it's a, a mixture of genetics and um, like in utero experiences that you know solidifies. Okay, you've got this brain now, and that will affect your experience, the way you the way you experience the world, and the way you inter- interact with the world. And essentially, it's like psychopaths are, and schizoids are lacking something that, to the rest of humanity, is seen as some kind of fundamental um, fundamental you know part of being human, part of the human experience. So right away we can see that you know um, that description from that first quote from um, from like Darwin's what granddaughter, um, a dar- yeah Darwin's granddaughter that they 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 seemed not to be able to like to intuit certain things about uh, about human reality like uh, I wouldn't go so far as to you know diagnose for sure I'd need to know a lot more about you know, well I couldn't even do it if I did know a lot more I could make a guess but. Uh, but but there, at least there's a there's a, uh, a comparison yeah a suggestion and a comparison to be made because even if you're not diagnosable as uh, you know as a schizoid for instance um, there's still something to be said about you know there you meet people in in everyday life that for what for whatever reason seem to just not be able to get certain things and seem to not be able to understand certain people. Um, not necessarily because they have cert- have personality disorders, but there's you know s- some suggestion you know there. So with that in mind, <coughs> I'll, I'll read one or two other uh, of these next quotes. So Lobachevsky goes on: schizoid schizoid characters aim to impose their own conceptual world upon other people or social groups, using relatively controlled pathological egotism, arrogance, and the exceptional tenacity derived from their persistent nature. Basically, have like a a hyperactive um, a hyperactivity to them, essentially. They are thus eventually able to overpower another's individual personality, which causes the latter's behavior to, de- to turn desperately illogical. 
they may also exert a similar influence upon the group of people they have joined. They are psychological loners who feel better in some human organization wherein they become zealots for some ideology, religious bigots, materialists, or adherents of an ideology with satanic features. If their activities consist of direct contact on a small social scale, their acquaintances easily perceive them to be eccentric, which limits their ponderogenic role. However, if they manage to hide their own personality behind the written word, their influence may poison the minds of society in a wide scale and for a long time. Skipping a bit and going to the next quote. The 19th century, especially its latter half, appears to have been a time of exceptional activity on the part of schizoidal individuals, often but not always of Jewish descent. After all, we have to remember that 97% of all Jews do not manifest this anomaly, and it also appears among all European nations, albeit to a markedly lesser extent. Our inheritance from this period includes world images, scientific traditions, and legal concepts flavored with the shoddy ingredients of a schizoidal apprehension of reality. So there are a few more, but I think we can just focus on those ones for now. Um, because essentially what you have is that, um, like most, well, this is the way, I'm going to approach it from a, from a side angle. Um, there was a recent, um, oh, I think, where did I hear it recently? There was, there was a couple things, a couple similar things that I read. One was like a poll of people in Russia and uh, like what their approach to politics was. And basically, like something like 90% of Russians like were not involved in, in getting involved in politics in an active way. You know, basically like joining a political party or running for office. And, uh, and I, I read something similar, you know, elsewhere that, you know, oh, actually what, what it was is that um, this, was a, this was a guy, um, you know, a, a previous supporter of, uh, like the Bol Bolivarian Revolution, Chavismo in, in Venezuela, and he was talking about direct democracy and the actual experience of direct democracy and how, um, like, from his perspective now, act after seeing how it works, he basically says that, you know, he doesn't really necessarily even agree with the concept because when, you, when it actually gets put into practice, like, direct democracy is actually a lot of work. Um, like, you actually have to be involved in the democratic process, and you have to learn a whole bunch of new skills and put them into practice, and it's something that most people actually don't want to do. They want someone else to take care of that, because they've got other things to do. They want to spend time with, with their families, they want to, you know, work at their jobs and do their hobbies. They don't actually don't want to, you know, attend party meetings and get involved in the decision-making process and be on committees and, and do all this stuff. It's just, they're, they're not interested in it. And um, so there's a, like, so f the vast majority of people um, are kind of like that in more than one way. The vast majority of people aren't just interested in writing books, for instance. They're not interested in, interested in coming up with grand theories about everything and why things exist and, you know, how things should work and et cetera. You know, there, it's, a, it's a very small percentage of the population that will write books. And, but the problem is that um, one uh, like one subset of the type of people that will write books are like Lobachevsky's talking about, um, people with certain personality disorders. But people with, per with certain personality disorders who have um, a naturally, like for them, um, um, simplistic, doctrinaire, like unrealistic view of humanity. Like they know what they experience, and which, which is like stunted in a certain way. But they kind of project that onto all of humanity because they can't, they can't get into the mind of, a, of an ordinary person. 
they can't understand, let's say, like a really religious person or a really um, like agreeable, like emotional person, etc. So they come up with these kind of grand theories that, at their at the basic root of things, have this this kind of starved perception of humanity that that's uh, kind of bleached out most of the things that that ordinary people think of as kind of essentially human. And so what Lobachevsky's talking about is that the problem with this is that, well, well, the, the advantage is that usually if these people, um, if someone like this is coming up with like a grand theory and is actually interacting with people, um, people will naturally like see that this person seems a bit eccentric and weird. And, and you, I think we've all met people like this, um, especially if you've like, dealt with the public, for instance. You know, like I worked in retail for a while, I had a bookstore, and you know, there were certain people that would come in who were just weird, Right, and you'd cut like I would. I would. I'd talk to them and let them let them talk to me, and they'd tell me like all their ideas. Right, for for an, a half hour or an hour at a time, they'd just go off. Right, and I'd just kind of smile and nod. Sometimes I wouldn't even be listening to what they're saying because I was doing other things, but they didn't even notice. And they just keep talking, and then I'd say, "Okay, you know, I gotta go get back to work now." And they'd be like, "Okay, great, got bye," you know, and and head out. But they're just you know, there are there are always people like that. And in everyday interactions, you meet them and you're like, oh, there's, oh, that made me remember one other guy who was um, just really weird. But uh, in, so in real life, you meet these people and, and like you, you can't really take them seriously because they do seem so ex eccentric and you'd be like, okay, well, you know, like there's obviously something, something not quite right with this guy's, with, with this guy in the head, but you know, I'm still going to be, you know, pleasant with this person and be polite, et cetera. Um, but when you, when they write a book and they put it out and you don't have that interaction with them, all of a sudden like their words can acquire a kind of power that they don't have when you're, when you're just interacting with them in person. And this is essentially what Lobachevsky is saying happened a lot in like the, in the 19th century is that a lot of people who have, who had a very um, like pathological and like uni level view of humanity got, had their works just spread all over the place. And, um, um, well, there I've got some examples. Like a few years ago, well, actually several years ago, I started reading this book um, by Steven Pinker, The Blank Slate. I'm not really a fan of Steven Pinker because, well, for one reason, he's a neo-Darwinist materialist, but uh, at least he knows a lot, and you know, he he can share a bunch of data. And so, this book is basically about um, uh, it's called The Blank Slate: The Modern Denial of Human Nature. So it's about kind of like the intellectual history of the view that. Um, that uh, human humanity doesn't have a nature that that we have a blank slate essentially, and but just also just other views of human nature that have that have happened um, you know over the centuries and basically you know it starts in the 17th century century with John Locke John Locke who introduced this idea of the tabula rasa, and then uh, also Thomas Hobbes. So I want to read a, a quote from Thomas Hobbes. Uh, for those who have read Ponderology, you might be able to um, see where I'm going with this one. So. This is what Hobbes wrote in uh, you know, the 1600s. Hereby it is manifest that during, the time, uh, that, that during the time men live without a common power to keep them in awe, they are, all, or they are in that condition which is called war. And such a war it as... Sorry, I gotta, I'm going to start this over. Um, Hereby it is manifest that during the time men live without a common power to keep them all in awe, they are in that condition which is called war. And such a war as is of every man against every man. In such condition, there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious, no commodious building, 
No instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, short. That is what human life is without the leviathan of the, of the state, of the, you know, a controlling, governing body. Um, so Pinker writes, Hobbes believed that people could escape this hellish existence only by surrendering their autonomy to a sovereign person or assembly. He called it a leviathan, the Hebrew word for a monstrous sea creature subdued by Yahweh at the dawn of creation. But basically, here's this, uh, here's this guy who, who like, developed a, a grand theory, and sure, you can look at the theory and you can probably find a whole lot of, of like, interesting things that he had to say, but at the root of it, there seems to be this, this view of human nature that is... Um, just wrong in some way, you know. Most people would look at it and say, "Well, that's just wrong." It's the same thing that, like Corey was bringing up earlier about, like, you know, certain Darwinist conceptions and how, um, you know, that well, they just seem seem to seem to be at odds with our direct experience of what we what we actually are of our own human nature. Um, but <clears throat> well, moving on, like so in the. You know, in the, in the seventh, also in the 17th century, Descartes kind of reacted to to this view of human nature um, with his kind of ghost, what what uh, Pinker calls the ghost in the machine, basically this dualism of you know mind and matter that basically split off the material world from the like uh, the conscious kind of spiritual world, um, which had some uh, disastrous results. But uh, then in the 18th century, you get like Rousseau, who had this uh, this vision of the noble savage. And uh, 19th century, finally, we get to you know John Stuart Mill, Bentham. So you get utilitarianism. Um, you get um, like the early economic theories, um, not only well Marx, but also the more kind of uh, like Adam Smith types. And basically, you can oh, you also get social social Darwinism. You get Freud. You get Marx. You get Darwin. Um, you look at all these theories and. They all, they're all based on this very simplistic, like you can often sum up their view of human nature like in a sentence. And so for like utilitarianism, you know, maximizing, um, what, what was the word they used? Maximizing what, no, self-interest or, um, um, oh, I can't remember my Bentham. But basically, you know, you've got, um, people are naturally self-interested and you just extrapolate up from that and you, you figure out human nature. And... Um, um, like I'll, I'll read a quote from John Stuart Mill from uh, Pinker here. Uh, this is what Mill writes. I have long felt that the prevailing tendency to regard all the marked distinctions of human nature as innate and in the main indelible and to ignore the irresistible proofs that by far the greater part of those differences, whether between individuals, races, races or sexes, are such as not only might be naturally not as are such as not only might but naturally would be produced by differences in circumstances is one of the chief hindrances to the rational treatment of great social questions and one of the greatest stumbling blocks in human improvement this tendency is so agreeable to human indolence as well as to conservative interests generally that unless attacked at the very root it is sure to be carried to even greater length then is really justified by the more moderate form of intuitional philosophy. Actually, um, don't really know why I read that one. I had it in my notes, but it doesn't seem like I actually <laughs> needed to read that one. Um, so yeah, just forget that I was talking about, about Mill. I'm sure there was something that I wanted to say. But basically, 
like th these views of human nature as um, you can see how they have um, influenced us for the last like 150 years. And we, so we see that in even like modern game theory and modern economics. Um, no, not everyone, but, but there is this, this really simplistic view of, of human nature that's often like, okay, people are in, are in conflict with one, each other, with one another. They are self-interested and um, are always looking for the upper hand. Like, real, life is a zero-sum game. And, um, and that, you know, it all, it, all those ideas were, you know, at their root in, the, in these, like, late 19th century writers. And, well, there was one more, um, like, ideology that rose up around that time that I wanted to, to talk about. Um, that's, like, political Zionism. So, um, I want to read a quote from the Jewish Virtual Library on Theodor Herzl, who was like the ideological founder of the, or one of the ideological founders of the Zionist mm -hmm. movement. Um, Herzl concluded that anti-Semitism was a stable and immutable factor in human society, which assimilation did not solve. He mulled over the idea of Jewish sovereignty and, despite, ridicu but despite ridicule from Jewish leaders, published the Jewish state, Der Judenstaat. Herzl argued that the essence of the Jewish problem was not individual, but national. He declared that the Jews could gain acceptance in the world only if they ceased being a national anomaly. The Jews are one people, he said, and their plight could be transformed into a positive force by the establishment of a Jewish state with the consent of the great powers. He saw the Jewish question as an international political question to be dealt with in the, in the arena of international politics. Now, another quote from Marxists.org. So this is from a, a Marxist website. It's a critique of, a, a Marxist cr critique of Zionism, um, if you can imagine that. So, um, rather, Zionism declared, minority persecution is inherent in human nature. There is thus no point in trying to combat it. Instead, one must accept it and accommodate as well as one can to this inevitable eternal evil. Then quoting uh, something Herzl said, which I summarized just before. This pessimistic starting point, which postulates an immutable, inherently evil human nature, is often toned down by official Zionist spokesmen, but it is voiced loud and clear by those who do not have to make allowances for diplomacy. J. Bar Yosef is typical of the more extreme position, quote, the generation in which, in which Zionism was born had great faith in human progress and fraternity. It accepted Rousseau's theory that human nature is basically good. Let people live decently and human society will become an angel's society. The minority must realize that human nature is basically evil, that the majority will always treat the minority according to its whims. Occasional waves of liberalism have only a temporary character. No education, progress, liberalism, humanism can save the minority when the terrible hour comes. So even in Zionism, um, you have this this um, like simplistic view of humanity <clears throat> as essentially evil, um, and that that initial premise then like leads out to all of the the like the policies essentially of the of the overall worldview. And so for for Herzl and for a lot of the early Zionists, it was the, it was the the idea that humanity is essentially anti-Semitic, always is, always will be. There's no other explanation for it, you know, and and that you know, on the face of it, that's just absurd, because um, like anti-Semitism itself is, it can't be this 
this like giant immutable thing that has existed for all time, even before Jews as a race existed, right? There has, there has to be some kind of historical contingency going on, some kind of historical analysis and some kind of like individual analysis too. Cause like, like that first quote said, um, Herzl didn't think it was an individual problem on either end of the spectrum. It was a collective pro- problem. It was something that all, like all Jews had in common and all Goyim had in, had in common. It was, it's this immutable feature of humanity. And that in itself reveals a kind of, not only a kind of like naivety, but really a kind of like, um, you know, pathology of, of, um, of experience and of, of what, you know, what you just see when you look in the world. It's a, it's a conclusion that the facts don't warrant, essentially. And that is what all of these theories have in common, is that they are, that what they come down to is, is that they are conclusions that should have like an ar- argumentation that leads to that conclusion, but they basically start with what should be the conclusion of one of, you know, their main arguments. They start with that conclusion as the basis, as the starting point of their philosophy from which everything else comes, but they haven't established their main premise. They and usually when that happens, like I, I think from my experience, if someone has done that, has has come to this conclusion, it, it usually says more about them and like their own psychology, their own like inner landscape mm-hmm. than it says about like their their reasoning or the reasons that they came up with their their theory in the first place. And you think about how um, how dangerous these schizoidal ideologies are when, you, and you look back on the the twentieth century and you see that. You know this uh, this view of human nature informed by social Darwinism, uh, written by prep. You know, like uh, Lobachevsky says, the schizoids could have good intentions, and even if Darwin had, was a complete schizoid, you know, he could have had good intentions. He could have just been somewhat colorblind in the area of emotions, mm-hmm. but it was his uh, that theory. And then the actual schizoids, and then all of the other types of pathological individuals who who just went full bore on it, and you know used social Darwinism to inform the national socialists, you know, social policy. And then you see the combination of that and the schizoid way of viewing humanity, and that you know led to Adolf Hitler. And then the combination of that with this Zionist schizoid ideology. And, you know, there's just a time bomb, just a time bomb that's still, you know, ticking to this day. We're still faced with, uh, you know, fascist Nazi, you know, type thinking, although not nearly as bad as it was, but it's still a specter used against us by other schizoids. You know, there's not a day you go by that you don't hear about some new Nazi by, uh, by an actual Nazi. And then, uh, you know, just the time bomb in, in, the, in the Middle East, you know, it's, it's these ideologies you know the the individuals who put them into practice, like Lubitschewski said, they they think they're so brilliant, but they're just tools in the ponds of real criminal, real like the top uh, you know psychopathic vampire type individuals who just who uh, use these uh, these ideas, their books, the ideologies as weapons, and then you know chaos ensues. Well, th- this uh, reminds me to the statement uh, that uh, that was made in our last show on ideology. Which is that um, you know the schizoidal types and, and the pathological types uh, need an ideology. Uh, so so um, it, it's sort of as though you know if, if if they hadn't come up with it, you know it, it would have had to have been invented for them, um, or they they would have to come up with it in order to justify their own uh, being or lack thereof. But um, 
listening to you a few minutes ago, Harrison, there, there was, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to formulate the question here. It's kind of bubbling up uh, from back there a little bit at a time. Um, so we have all of these ideologies, all of these ideas uh, that have formed over the past you know, 100, 150 years that have, um, that have, in, have informed the thinking and, and the, the narrowing of the mind uh, in Western society in particular for so long uh, along, the, along the kind of paradigm or, or spectrum of materialist thinking, I would say. That's, that's my understanding. Mm -hmm. um, that, that doesn't think in terms of uh, spiritual values or religion in, in any kind of rigorous or, or objective way in, in the types of ways I, I think we, we generally tend to acknowledge here um, in this ongoing conversation. Now, uh, alongside of all, all of those thinkers uh, has been a strain of uh, people who have um, practiced spiritualism, have gotten into the occult and the new age uh, and parapsychology and all of these other um, disciplines and uh, pursuits that do acknowledge non-physical reality and, and validate it, uh, even if they too have swerved off into the pathological. Um, and, and a good example of that would be uh, what we've discussed on the show on Jung, um, where you know, ostensibly you have these, these giants of, of metaphysical thinking and, on religion and, and growth who unfortunately have been influenced by uh, and influence others with pathological ideas. Um, now we have we have intelligent design that in some way is uh, attempting to, if not bridge the gap between uh, religion and the non-physical reality through a study of information, um, at least saying that Darwinism uh, is is wrong. So it, it's just it's not even. Uh, it's not even attempting quite yet to, and you know, and, and it's separating itself from creationism. It's, it, you know, many of these thinkers are not uh, saying, well, if if the neo-Darwinism uh, Darwinists are incorrect, then it has to be a creationist idea. Um, but they're but they're at least saying, look, this is what we can begin to objectively rule out, um, and that's a that's certainly a very valuable thing for us right now. Um, at the same time, you know, you look back over the last 150 years and there has been so little, um, development, um, or growth or, or, uh, um, any kind of real objective, um, study of the science of the soul. Uh, I mean, we did that book, Anatomy of the, of the soul. Is that, was that the mm -hmm. exact title? Consciousness uh, is Anatomy of the Soul. Yes. Thank you. Uh, several weeks ago, and uh, and of course there are the books by Broad on parapsychology, and 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 there are a number of other works, but they 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 come so uh, so far in many cases to kind of explain and account for the types of things that that we would like to um, affirm with any kind of objective. Uh, rationalization not, that's probably not a good word but but understanding and thought and it just seems like all of these materials 
materialist <laughs> thinkers have taken a, a much greater place in the minds of, of people who don't uh, believe in religion um, or, or who have faith uh, or who are trying to better themselves in, in the way that, um, you know, good, good psychology and, and, and good uh, people like uh, Jordan Peterson have, have come out to, to uh, nurture in people. So I guess what I'm saying is um, we, we're still uh, as great an accomplishment as I think these recent developments have been in intelligent design. Um, we're still so uh, hungry and, and lacking for better explanations mm -hmm. as to why we're here and what we're made of and what reality is and, and what our place in it is and what it is we're supposed to do as human beings in, in all our complexity and, and what, what a truly constructive way of thinking might be. Um, and so uh, I, I suppose the best we can do is, 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 you know, like you were doing with the quotes by Lobachowski, uh, you know, it, it, it's very good to rule out what things shouldn't be. Um, but we're still... Uh, ahead of us looking towards those ideas that um, that are valid, that are things to be working towards. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some ways we're groping in the dark, in some ways I think we, we are making some progress, um, but we still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the intelligent design, that whole field of study, it seems to me like it could be like a, a quantum leap in terms of of awareness for individuals who are willing to entertain the idea of yes. of intelligence in the universe, just because um, if you don't go in it with the well, it's actually you know Jesus Christ made every caterpillar, you know, which I don't. <laughs> some of them obviously have that idea, but the really good ones don't, and uh, they but they still have the scientific credentials. A lot of them do in order to make their claims and have them, um, you know, give them some weight. <sighs> But you, when you when you pose that question, when you look at the sheer, um, just the sheer amount of weight and power behind the study of genetics, you know, so many people studying the, you know, studying genes, studying DNA, mapping it out, trying to figure out what it is, and then you combine that with a with some with the intelligence that's capable of deciphering what it, what's going on, you know, reading the code, so to speak. Then I think that you do you have the potential for kind of this quantum leap in terms of your awareness of the 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 universe, of what it what it is, what it's for. You know, higher intelligence, lower intelligence. You know, maybe the code isn't written in there. It's like this is why you were this is why you were created. But if there is intelligence in the universe and in you know the creation of mankind, then reading the code that's responsible for it is uh, to me that's that is that would be just unbelievably phenomenal to to be, when that book comes out and it's like we found some message we could you know we've we're learning the language of of this uh you know this computer code or whatever whatever quantum crazy code is going on but i do i think that uh just the the time that we're in right now to have you know people who are intelligent and you know actually using actual science to investigate these questions not just you know new age philosophy not just you know me sitting in my armchair and philosophizing about what 
um, the universe means, but to actually be out there and being able to read and to have some sort of a dialogue, even if it's like you're like a three-year-old child and you're trying to have a dialogue with your, you know, your parent or whatever, there's still information that's being transferred. You know, you're still, you're still learning something, even if you can, can't possibly um, understand what it is that he's saying to you, but maybe, uh, maybe there's still, uh, still hope, I think, in that, in that area. Well, made me think about something. Um, one of the things that Jordan Peterson says is that when he's talking to people, uh, people that come to his talks often have one of two responses. Actually, he says that I think the, the vast majority, if not all of the people, have one of two responses. Either they were in a bad place and hearing what he had to say got them to turn their lives around and things have been great since then or things are getting better. The other response is, you're saying things that I, al- al- that I always knew at some level but ne- could never put into words myself. And that seems to be, um, so I want to talk about that second one for a second, because there seems to be something about people where we do have certain ideas, however vaguely formulated in our minds, that um, they're just, it's like they're lying there in potential. They haven't met their, their, their like partner out in the world that is able to like, you know, once you make that connection, it says, oh yeah. You just said what I'm actually thinking, but but for most for a lot of people, no one actually says what they're thinking, so they're never able to like affirm that part of their of their thought for themselves, and they don't actually develop it because they don't know how. So there's this this process that goes on. It's like where where you provide that alternative, right? Well, here's the here like um like what you were saying, Alan, is that we've got we we can take down like Darwinism, we can take down all these ideologies and all these belief systems. But like, there's still a lot of work into building a replacement, right? Building something to fill that hole. Well, there's there the, the the hole is there, like waiting to be filled, and and there's and people have some awareness of that. At least some people, for whatever reason, have some awareness um, that that there is something like some yearning in them for something more. And then when they encounter it, there's that moment of recognition. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's what I actually believe, and I didn't even realize I believed it until I heard you say it, and. Um, well, with that in mind, I want to I want to read some more of the the Lobachevsky quotes because he's talking about how, um, like, well, the influence of these types of like bad ideologies, and I th- but I think there's a there's a, there's a connection to be made with that phenomenon that I just talked about. So uh, Lobachevsky writes, in spite of the fact that the writings of schizoidal authors contain the above described deficiency, or even an openly formulated schizoidal declaration, which constitutes sufficient warning to specialists. The average reader accepts them not as a view of reality warped by this anomaly, but rather as an idea to which he should assume an, an attitude based on his convictions and reasons. And reason, um, just a, a bit on that, the schizoidal declaration. Uh, we didn't talk about it yet today. We've talked about it on previous shows, but that's basically what Hobbes said. Essentially, human nature is so bad that you need a strong authority to keep them in line. Um, that seems to be like, according to Lobachevsky, like a common belief. Uh, among like you know schizoidal authors that because human nature is so bad they've got you know they, that's their their like simplistic perception of human nature that they like the only solution is that people need to control them and and uh you know and and I know the the kind of people that need to control them they have to believe in my ideology essentially right but that um <clears throat> when no, when normal people encounter like writings like this they don't automatically recognize that it's the product of you know, someone essentially with a personality disorder, but they they look at the ideas and they assume that uh, that they should um, like interpret them in in their own categories of thought. You know, using the their own you know natural way of thinking. 
So he goes on and says that uh, that is the first mistake. The oversimplified pattern, devoid of psychological color and based on easily available data, exerts an intense influence upon individuals who are insufficiently critical, frequently frustrated as a result of downward social adjustment, culturally neglected, or characterized by some psychological deficiencies. Others are provoked to criticism based on their healthy common sense. Um, also, they fail to grasp this essential cause of the error. So, um, well, right there, so he's talking about the kind of like the, the, the types of people that react to this, and he gives a few examples. Like, um, so people who aren't very critical, you know, so people who just, you know, kind of, kind of believe in anything that they read, essentially, which is a lot of people. Um, and people who are frustrated for reasons of what he calls downward social adjustment. So these would be people who are um, like overqualified for the work they're doing. They're stuck in a low position when their potential is actually much greater. And that leads to a kind of inner frustration um, that basically, you know, a, a lack of meaning in your life. You know, there's something more I could be doing and I should be doing, but I, I can't do it. Um, so there's kind of a hopelessness that gets in, instilled in that sense. And uh, you know people who are culturally neglected. So this might this might be like um, you know downtrodden minorities in some in in some sense or in in some places, and uh, but also people with similar and other uh, psychological deficiencies, people with other personality disorders or other trauma-based like reactions to um, to either pathological individuals or just life circumstances, etc. So he goes on and says that uh, societal interpretation of such activities is broken down into the main trifurcations engendering divisiveness and conflict. The first branch is the path of aversion, based on rejection of the contents of the work due to personal motivations, differing convictions, or moral revulsion. This already contains uh, uh, the component of a moralizing interpretation of pathological phenomena. So these would be people that read it and just, uh, like, they're morally turned off, they're morally repulsed by the things that they read, they just see it as wrong. They might not know why, um, like they, they don't know, they understand don't understand necessarily the psychology behind it. It just you know it rubs them the wrong way, and they for whatever reason and they reject it. Um, he goes on. We can distinguish we can distinguish two distinctly different apperception types among those persons who accept the contents of such works: <clears throat> the critically corrective and the pathological. People whose feel for psychological reality is normal tend to incorporate chiefly the more valuable elements of the work. They trivialize the obvious errors and complement the schizoid deficiencies by means of their own richer worldview. This gives, this gives rise to a more sensible, measured, and creative interpretation, but is not free from the influence of the error frequently adduced above. So this would be, like, this is the reason that, um, that schizoid ideologies are actually able to spread, is because people will, will look at, like, some of the, some of the ideas like included in there and be like, oh, well, you know, those are good ideas. I agree with that. Um, and all oh, that other stuff, that's, I don't really understand that or it's not that important or here's another interpretation for it. Um, <laughs> but in that process, they end up um, taking in some of, that, some of that pathological material for themselves. And so this is like probably this, I'm guessing this might be the factor that was, you know, applicable in, in your situation, Corey, when you were talking to like your, uh, like, your teacher, the students. editor, yeah. the editing assistant, yeah, like um, no, she was pure evil. <laughs> oh, maybe, well, maybe. <laughs> but just like so, there are some people that just like yeah. You know, well, it's part of the indoctrination process. You you come to it and you believe it, and uh, you adopt those ideas for yourself. You might not actually um, 
like you tone it down essentially like you're not in your everyday life you're not going to turn into a total social darwinist but you're going to have these beliefs that are going to affect your life in some way even if you contradict them in you know the way you behave like that essentially people who believe in any of these theories if they're any degree normal are going to be engaging in some kind of performative contradiction like you said they're going to believe one thing but they're going to act another way and that's and you'll even get darwinists who admit this um um, and you and you get people materialists of all sorts who admit this. They say, well, you know, when I'm when I'm in my office and I'm being a blank like a, a a mathematician or a physicist or a biologist, I think one way. And when I'm at home with my family, I'm a you know I have a different worldview essentially. And th so there's this contradiction between the way they think the world works completely and absolutely, and the way they actually live their lives, um, which should be a hint that maybe their theory is wrong. But uh, you don't get many people that will actually go that far. Um, but so then he goes on to the third uh, category, which is pathological acceptance. He says that it is it is manifested by individuals with diverse man, what, diverse deviations, whether inherited or acquired, as well as by many people bearing personality malformations who have been injured by social injustice. That explains why this scope of why this scope is wider than the circle drawn by direct action of pathological factors. This apperception often brutalizes the author's concepts and leads to acceptance of forceful methods and revolutionary means. So these people actually take the schizoid ideology and transform it and make it like even more brutal and even more pathological. Um, because like he says, like, like schizoids, schizoids tend to have good intentions. Like they're not like totally evil in what they're saying. They actually think, like they're, they're often utopians. Um, they say, oh, well, here's the problem in the world. Here's my simplistic idea of, what the, of the reason for the problem and here's what I'm going to do or here's my solution for how to fix it. And people will often uh, grab onto that because, you know, like we were talking last week about ideologies, and you, with the example of right sector, you have all these ideologies, and and uh, a few weeks before that on uh, Salafi jihadism, you have these like uh, overly simplistic ideologies devoid of common sense and actual human um, like knowledge of human nature. And you get a whole bunch of like disaffected youths, usually people who have a um, a grudge to bear, people who do have a grievance of some sort, who can get behind that. Oh, you know, the world really is messed up, and here's this person saying this is the reason it's messed up, and here's how to how to fix it. And it's like that is a, a source of meaning for them. Unfortunately, it happens to be like based on a false premise, or at least one false premise. And so then then you get, they get caught up in like usually like a revolutionary social movement, which then gets hijacked by even more per, uh, pathological types who, you know, well, we, you know, we've seen like last week um, where that goes and what that develops into. And then just one last quote from Lobachevsky. In the ponderogenic process of the pathocratic phenomenon, um, characteropathic individuals adopt, in, adopt ideologies created by doctrinaire, often schizoidal people, recast them into an active propaganda form and disseminate it with pathological egotism and paranoid intolerance for any philosophies which may differ from their own. They also inspire further transformation of this ideology into its pathological counterpart. Something which had a doctrinaire character and circulated in numerically limited groups is now activated at a societal level, thanks to, the, uh, thanks to their spellbinding possibilities. So even there, we can see like a uh, at least an analogy to make to be made with Darwinism mm -hmm. and the way it has been. Um, well, first of all, it has been recast because Darwinist uh, Darwin himself believed in God, 
Darwin believed that God created the world and that e God even created, um, I believe, either the first life forms or, um, or humans, like the human mind. Like God, uh, Darwin still had a place for God in his worldview. And contrary to what a lot of like neo-Darwinists believe, he actually did believe that until the end of his life. He didn't like recant. He didn't become a total atheist. Um, he always had like a, a belief in God. The problem was that the like the the, the premises, like the the basic assumptions in his theory, didn't leave any room for God. Um, so the natural logical conclusion of his theory was to move towards a more a more, more neo-Darwinist perspective, which was totally atheistic, materialistic, in nature. Yeah, and the that conception of human nature was basically psychopathic, right? When it morphed completely into the social Darwinism and the national socialism, then that that uh, view of nature is was completely different, obviously. Mm -hmm. That was just the you know the elevation of the psychopath to the top, to the ideal for what everyone should want to be is you know this Hitlerian you know uh, eugenics you know individual. Mm -hmm. And so now you know today, like we've seen, like if you read uh, Matt Lazola's book Heretic on his experiences in uh, what was it uh, like Switzerland and Finland, I think he's from. Um, how did uh, Lobachevsky put it here that? Uh, uh, disseminated with pathological egotism, so extreme arrogance, and uh, a paranoid intolerance for philosophies which may differ differ from their own. That is a, essentially like a, a a perfect a perfect definition for Darwinist today. You know, <laughs> someone who who um, is paranoid, uh, who has a paranoid intolerance for philosophies that differ from their own. Like you, um, for the most part, if you're a, a neo Darwinist, that's just comes with the territory. You are going to be um, Paranoidly, intolerantly paranoid, parano uh, paranoidly intolerant, um, and that's just uh, the way the cookie crumbles, unfortunately. So um, I don't know. We've we're, we've actually gone for an hour and a half. Did we want to go anywhere else with that, or have we kind of uh, said what we want to say? No, I I think that uh, we've yeah we've come pretty far through all the material. I guess the only thing that I could think of is this. Just this idea of how how many lies there are out there, and how many lies there have been circulating, and how important it is to always be vigilant. Um, because if you know, if you're following this conversation, obviously we're talking about you know intelligence out in the universe. We're talking about uh, individuals who are they have good intentions, but they put their thoughts to paper and they contaminate everyone's minds. And we've all got minds that have been contaminated by material that we've absorbed and we have assumptions we don't even know that we had. And so, you know, just just being on constant guard with, you know, how we think, how we behave and constantly absorbing new information. Otherwise, there's no way that we would have uh, we would have come across the, most of the material that we do the show on is just by constantly sharing these, you know, this information, reading it, thinking about it and and then um, striving to, you know, just to hammer out the, the chinks in our own armor, mm -hmm. because that's really what it comes down to, is is the, our defense. It's our only protection. I mean, this world is not ever going to be a utopia. It's going, you know, the really bad people make it to the top, and if when, obviously, when you go out there just dancing, hoping that it's going to be a utopia, or, you know, you see um, people trying to change things in order to make it better, to make it a utopia, lying to one another, you know, they're just, they're just food for, uh, for these real nasty types. And, you know, it's, we, we can't change that. The best thing that we can do is to, um, you know, watch one another's backs, learn as much as we can, watch, keep our uh, eyes to the, you know, <laughs> 
to the the sky, you know, the higher the higher things in life, the things to really hope for and to strive for, and to be on guard. That's good. that's all I have to say then. Good summation, Corey. And and the flip side, the part of what you were saying, I think, gets back to um, what Harrison was uh, alluding to a little earlier when he mentioned that you know sometimes we just have this intuitive. Um, uh, understanding of something that we can't yet articulate or don't have the information yet to explain to ourselves and and make uh, make whole make knowledge uh, you know to to solidify a, a particular uh, understanding that we were only kind of grasping at and uh, you know l- like you were saying that this is an ongoing process it's work um, but it makes us stronger uh, and I think it 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 um, it. It creates the firmament within ourselves to uh, to continue to grow and and add to our body of knowledge, and um, and uh, it does require a bit of rigor. Uh, but there is a there is a, a payoff. There is a substance that we're adding to ourselves that um, that I think can can be experienced in a kind of way. Um, so yeah, and encouraging all to. Keep on reading, keep on thinking, and, and, and uh, keep on listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, keep on tuning in. That does it for us today. Uh, tune in next week, and maybe sometime we'll actually have a, we'll get some video uh, footage up. You all can see what we look like when we're Jabber John. Uh, but thank you for tuning in, everybody. It's been a great conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. You have a great week, and we will see you again next time. See you, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye.